Welcome to the Composting Consciousness Podcast, hosted by Gray Garland and myself, Tango Faye Batelli. Composting Consciousness is an alchemical container of aliveness and alignment aimed at re-enchanting reality with curiosity and creativity. The work of composting your consciousness is you doing you with what you have. Deceptively simple, deeply nuanced. Today's episode primarily centers on our chronic pain journeys. We both spent years in daily chronic pain that we thought would be the rest of our lives, but actually now neither of us live with. Um, The sources of our pain were similar-ish, but our experiences were very different, part of which we learned while recording. Uh, We talk a bit about dealing with, you know, medical professionals, the mindset and like identity of chronic pain and being in the chronic pain fog. And we talk about the surprises we discovered along the way, especially around changes we thought were permanent and would We'd never see in our lifetimes, but now now we live them every day. A bit of a content warning up front. We do drop the F-bomb a number of times, and there are a couple brief mentions of, let's say, unaliving ideation. So just wanted to let you know up front so you can make the most responsible choices for yourself and how to listen. So grab your supplies for making art, your shoes for taking a walk, or even a broom to get some cleaning accomplished, and settle in for about an hour of musing and giggling from your favorite friendly neighborhood existential gardeners. But yeah, I I guess the reason I wanted to talk about our chronic pain journey or whatever we want to call it is because when I quote unquote met you, when we became friends in a group chat on Instagram, (laughs) you were describing what sounded like my life from a few years ago that I had spent a decade in of just daily fun pain, fatigue and joint pain and gut stuff and were you on the migraine train as well no i that's the one thing that i have very blessedly never (laughs) dealt with i've had like one migraine or what i think i might have just been a really terrible tension headache i'm still not entirely sure but like (laughs) at least (laughs) i've never had to deal with migraines but i have had pain in almost every other body system like Nerve pain, yeah, your joint muscle pain, pain sounded, joint pain. Yeah. Even like fucking my bladder is not yeah. safe. <laughs> 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 yeah, and like I I first started having chronic pain around probably like age seven or eight. I would get like these terrible like flu-like symptoms where my whole body just ached and it was hard to move. And I didn't really, but it wasn't, it wasn't daily at that point. It would be daily for like periods of time, but I would also have periods of time where I felt like generally normal. And it wasn't until I was like, I think 18 that I started having like daily pain and it slowly got worse until around 2017 when I was like 22 or yeah, I think 22 uh, it it got bad enough that like I 
was basically bedridden. I had to like quit college and yeah, that's when it really started getting bad. And then it just progressively got worse at an even faster pace between like 2017 and 2021. Yeah, I think what part part of what like was breaking my heart at the time was hearing that you were in that like pharmacy loop that like where they'll like they'll only prescribe you this small number but then like they only have it ready at the pharmacy it's only certain pharmacies and they're open weird hours and do they have it stocked and like all of these things and when you're in that much pain like you can't go you can't miss like missing doses is not just like oh I'll catch up like that's not how chronic pain works right because um, like at the time they were just starting to tighten uh, the opioid restrictions, and I had just been put on opioids. I was at the time taking tramadol, um, which is a much less tightly controlled opioid. I can't remember. There's like it's some special type of opioid where it is one, but it's not. I remember. I used to be really good with all this stuff because I was constantly researching it for years. And then I got sent to a pain management doctor and put on like the real like heavy duty opioids where like you have to like take a pee test every month so they can ensure that you're taking it and like it's impossible. Oh, not like selling it? Right, exactly. Oh, it is, it's like they make you feel like a criminal. And yeah. it the whole system just made me anxious, especially because I like my sister had an addiction to opioids and for years I never wanted to touch them because I was afraid that I would instantly become addicted to them too and I had all I'd moralized them as a substance. I there were a lot of reasons why I didn't want to be on them and then the system just makes you feel so anxious all the time like I felt like everybody was just watching me expecting me to like be selling them or abusing them and then like yeah they'll just they just like meanwhile not focusing at all on helping you not be in pain right and like the withdrawals for these types of medications are intense and bad and in some cases like you can die um but then the pharmacies and doctors don't treat it like that like i will say that my pain management doctor he was really good but like he saw so many patients and there and some of the people working for him were not really on top of their shit so there there were constantly breakdowns happening where I would like get pushed into withdrawals and then like good luck dragging your ass to the pharmacy when you're in like full body with withdrawals. Exactly. It's not, it's not a fun way to live. And I used to like, it really was a trigger for my suicidal ideation because I would just think like, if this is how I have to live for the rest of my life, I can't do it. So I basically felt like I was just waiting until the day when it became too much when I would end my life and give mm -hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Very understandable, um, which may not be every listener's reaction to that story, but it's it's mine because while I haven't been in your exact shoes, I've been in a similar uh, shit shit ride. I'll call it a shit ride. <laughs> I I don't really have many memories before like the age of ten, and I already have headaches and some joint pain by then, so I don't really know when it started I guess because you were saying like seven or eight and I was like oh did I not have pain then and I was like I could probably tell you where I lived because I moved a lot when I was younger but I don't actually have very many memories of childhood I have like 
flashes. Oh yeah, that was that apartment or that house or that school room or something, but that's it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I mostly had migraines and then there were all of these other symptoms that kind of came and, and weird joint pains and uh, I don't even know how to describe everything. Mostly my doctors fixated on migraines and I got sent to different specialists and they're like, we're going to take this blood and we're going to stick this thing to your head and do these scans. And then at the end of my appointments, it would still be like, here's a couple different medications to go play guess and check with. If one of them happens to stop your migraine, let us know and I'll write you a prescription. Like I was, I felt like such a guinea pig. Um, you. <laughs> and so by the time I was 18, I, all I know is daily abs, like date, like there was no, that was the thing when my doctor would try to ask me questions like, when do the headaches start? When are they the worst? When do they end? Da, 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 da. I'm, and I, I was a kid and I wasn't super self-aware enough to be like, I am always in pain at every moment. It's just, is it a two, a five, an eight or a 12 out of the 10 scale? You know what I mean? Um, but I, I didn't describe that very well um, at the time. Autism. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm 18 and I'm going off to college. I'm, I'm jaded with the medical system. Like no doctor has helped me with my pain. I even, I even initially went to college for biology to go into neuroscience. I was like, I will study if I live that long. Cause I also just, because of the pain, which the chronic pain comes with the suicidality, like you mentioned, I sort of developed this subconscious belief that I would surely die young because I was like, surely there's like something wrong with like my DNA or like my body is just built broken and it's going to like run out of steam and just like break at like in my early twenties. But if I make it to the point of migraine research, maybe I can fix it. Shrug. Like that's how much that like chronic pain really just like takes all of your ambition and energy and hopes and dreams and all of those things. You have no energy for that stuff. You're just like, oh, wow, if I can make it one more step, like, cool, I guess. <laughs> or yeah. someone kill me now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so my, my foray into getting into slowly getting out of chronic pain was weed. I, um, <laughs> I went to some little house party and ended up hitting a volcano machine, which I had never oh, even Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe they were not just regular old bong no. people. Nope, nope. I didn't hit a joint. <laughs> I didn't hit a bong. I inhaled an entire purified bag of, of weed smoke. <laughs> oh, my God. That would have put me on the floor with my first time smoking. Well, it did. I mean, I, I passed out shortly after that because I was also drinking alcohol. So just, oh I was God. out but the very we'll next day. <laughs> uh, my roommate, who was, a f who was friends of my friends in high school, but I didn't actually know her. So like, I decided to roommate with her and she was a year older than me. So she would have been a sophomore and I was a freshman. And I was like, oh, instead of a total stranger with scares the piss out of me, at least I like sat at the opposite end of a lunch table from this person. Sometimes we did not get along. So a stranger <laughs> might have been a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you live and you learn. Um, 
And anyways, I've, I've since learned that for a lot of people, the very first time they smoked weed, they were like high for like a whole other day for like over 24 hours. And it's probably because I won't get into all that, but anyways, cause I was like, is it weird that, so I, I fell asleep, but then the very next day I felt great. I had no headache. I had no pain anywhere in my body. I went for a run around campus. I ran on concrete over a mile, which I like, I don't, first of all, I've never run that far on concrete. It hurts your joints too much. And I haven't run a mile since you were like supposed to do it in high school gym. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that was torture. Actually, I think the last couple of years I got doctor's notes to, to not have to do that. Um, and I ran, I felt amazing. And then the next day, all of the pain was back again. And I was like, what is, what is this illegal substance that I have stayed away from? Because I am a good girl who does not break the law. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but all of those shitty pills I got prescribed slash some that I wasn't prescribed, but I got from other people in high school. And I'm like, well, some doctors prescribe it to other people. So it's, it's legal to them. It must be you know, medicine's supposed to heal you. I got stomach ulcers. So (laughs) I was like, those things hurt me more than anything. But I, now it took me another year. I didn't know how to find it my freshman year of college. I was still scared. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any extra money. Like I was just like, whatever. I kind of stopped thinking about it and wanted to die again. You know what I mean? Um, But I somehow got the balls to transfer to a totally different college. I was like, if I'm gonna die, I'm not gonna die studying science. Like everyone's a bully (laughs) at like you have to, it's really cutthroat. And I just didn't have that, I didn't have that, I didn't have it left in me, which is funny if you know me now. (laughs) Cause you'd be like, really Tango, you're very ambitious. You couldn't do the biology try. I'm like, no, I did not have it. I didn't had nothing left (laughs) at the time. and I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna go study theater and write poetry. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you know, when you move to a more artsy college, you find kids smoking weed and I started smoking weed. (laughs) And instead of having multiple migraines a week, I had like only a couple migraines a month and like my joint pain became joint annoyance or something. Like it was still kind of there, but it was like an echo. And I had like, curiosity for things like the the drive to like hang out with people or go to a show or so, like live life again <laughs> um and before i knew it it like led to all of these lifestyle changes really quickly like my diet changed my social my my food diet changed my social diet changed of like instead of in high school, you're like stuck being like, oh, we're in the same class together. We're like friends while it's a class. We're not really friends. Whereas like in college, I found people who like, we enjoy each other. We care about each other. And so I think that was part of what was healing to my nervous system. The food thing, part of what was healing to my nervous system, the lack of force I was applying to do 8 million things at once because I wanted all of that hyperstimulation to help me avoid the pain. I just, I made all of these lifestyle changes that before I really realized it, I was like, I don't have chronic pain anymore. And then what was weird, it was like, does that mean I'm not dying? Now what? Because I hadn't really been planning my life either. But 
I almost had a sense of guilt for a while because I was like, I want, you know, I got into the full spoony lifestyle. Like I'm sure you did where it's like, well, this is how it's oh, going to yeah. be for life. This is my identity. I wish people would understand what it's like to live with chronic pain. Cause it's very, very different from acute pain. Um, and then it, and then it wasn't for me anymore. So I'm in this new identity that I didn't even realize that I was losing the old one. And then I didn't know how to share it with people. I'm like, if anyone asks, how did I go from 10 years or more of chronic pain to no more headaches or pain at all? I didn't have an answer for them. And that made me feel bad. <laughs> and so I just didn't think about it for a few years, like la la la, try to like floating through void space. And then I met you and I had to like face all of those things. Cause like my rescuer, but then I didn't know how to rescue you. So then I was like, don't say anything. And like, I, I honestly don't even fully remember how I approached. Tell, did I just like come out and tell you, be like, I used to have chronic pain. Did I just do it autistic? Yeah, style? no, I mean, you, you used to talk about it a lot, but you never um, suggested that that could happen to me too. Cause if you did, I'd probably try to murder you. Because I would be like, don't exactly. give me I knew that. <laughs> Even though, like, so, yeah, our stories are very different in this regard. Because I, or you, you distracted yourself to avoid the mm -hmm. chronic pain. I mm -hmm. distracted myself to avoid the emotional pain and the distraction, the stimulation caused physical pain. And that's why it just oh. got worse and worse and worse. Like I, especially after I got into engineering and then I'm like, t I'm doing this like super heavy course load and like also studying, I enjoyed studying. So I'm just spending like hours a day studying all these very mentally taxing things, like with no concern for how they're affecting me. And then going out and hanging out with friends afterwards and then going to work and like, I, I, the stimulation increased drastically and that's around the time my hair fell out. Also, in the timeline, um, I developed, for those who don't know, alopecia, which is an autoimmune condition, usually um, predicated by a very stressful event. Mine officially started after my ex's car accident, but then it got worse. Like, the year after I started, like, really, my course load really got intense um, with my, like, engineering work is when my hair fell out. And... I, you had invited me to Carolyn Elliott's wealth program, and there was a lady in that program who specifically helped people heal their chronic pain through, like, trauma work and presumably, like, existential kink type work. And I was interested in this. I was like, I don't have the money to work with this person, but I believe that this is possible so I had this like little teeny tiny flicker of hope in the back of my head that like maybe someday if I work through all of my trauma shit, um, maybe my chronic pain will go away. But I still was like afraid to hope for that because I had also, you know, ever since I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, been told time and time again that it's degenerative, that it only gets worse, yeah. that my body is just going to fall apart at a rapid rate yeah. and there's it's only down from here. So I like, remember I stopped studying it because of that. But yeah, I'm realizing yes. one little thing and I'll let you continue. I'm realizing that like, I didn't know anything about trauma or the fact that I have 
had have whatever CPTSD or the fact that any of my pain was related to trauma or CPTSD until it was gone and over. Like I learned that later. You're saying like you're still in the thick of it and realizing putting all the pieces together and then being like, oh, if I can address the trauma, that will address the pain. Yes, exactly. Okay. And and also around this time, I was like very aware of how bad the trauma problem because in 2017 when I left school due to chronic health issues I'd also just moved out of my parents house and for the first time in my life was able to say the words I was abused I was Mm. an abused child and that has had been impossible for me my entire life and but I didn't I couldn't I didn't have the capacity to actually process it I just kind of sat with that knowledge for like two years. And then I, as I slowly, I started, um, actually trying to set boundaries with my parents. I I was like, okay, these people are unhealthy for me and I need to reduce their access to me. And that caused like a bunch of fights and a bunch of explosion that really forced me, forced me to actually process the trauma because while I was still in contact with them, I still was kind of subconsciously buying into the old propaganda that like I might have been able to say like it's like the realization that I was abused was compartmentalized and like mm-hmm. locked in this box because I was still actively being abused and in order to stay there I I couldn't let it I couldn't actually start processing it because I would realize oh these same things that happened to me are still happening I don't know it's kind of hard to explain how that works makes sense I, I can't in this moment but um so like I went through this really rough year of trying to like set boundaries with my mom and spend more time away from her like not talking to her and and by the time I was in wealth like I had all of these trauma memories coming back all of this stuff started flooding back and and the emotions started coming up and I was actually able to feel the emotional impact of everything that happened to me and it it was like I thought that I was having a mental breakdown. I would have like these like full body convulsions and my husband, Cody, didn't know what to do. And I remember like saying some things to him about like, maybe I should, maybe I should be in a mental health facility right now, but it was also COVID. This was 2020 by this point. So I, I'm chronically ill. I don't really want to be in a hospital with a bunch of other people like during a pandemic. So I just kind of tried to like write it out. And I finally, in like 2021, uh, got the funds together to get into therapy. And I was working with like a really great trauma therapist. And I was seeing like teeny tiny bits of progress. And by the end of 2021, I was just, I was, I realized that like being on the opioids and having to like do all of the pharmacy doctor, because I also, you have to go to the doctor every single month to like get the new prescription like they have to see you you have to take the tests and it was causing me it was like such a big um trauma trigger because of traumas I've had in the medical system that I was like I'm never gonna get better this way so I just decided my doctor had been talking to me about buprenorphine this medication that is usually used to help um drug addicts get off of opioids but it has like um amazing implications for pain patients. And I thought, well, if this doesn't work, at least it gets me off the opioids and and I'll just go from there. Like I had no idea what was mm. what was on the other side of this or like 
what was going to happen. I was just like, I have to do something differently. And my like little escape hatch in my brain was like, I can always kill myself. But I, I really thought like maybe at this point, because I was on these medications and I was still in unbearable pain. I was still like bedridden. I was still miserable. So I was like, how could it be that much worse to not be on them at this point? And I got off of them. And after they completely left my system, I my my pain decreased by about 80%, like in the span of like 12 hours. And I started doing research and found out that autistic people have higher than average opioid tone. And if you take too many, addicts typically experience this. When they take too many opioids, it causes pain in their bodies. Like they can develop chronic pain conditions. And I realized that like, yeah, I had been just throwing all of these extra opioids on top of my already high opioid tone. And that's why I wasn't working. And then over, so like that, that freed up so much energy for me to address my trauma. I got into like somatic work. I started seeing such huge, um, such huge like leaps forward in therapy. Like when I started therapy, I, my therapist told me that like, you know, and she's, she worked in one of the top trauma hospitals in Texas um, and probably in the country. It's like a very good trauma hospital. She was, still does some work there, has worked there for years. And she said that I had one of the most extensive trauma histories of anyone she'd ever worked with. And when I came into her care, um, I my like PTSD scores on the assessment were very high. And by the time I left her care, total of nine months, I almost wouldn't qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. And I That's so like so cool. from the time. Yeah, from the time that I, and OCD, I also would not qualify for a diagnosis of OCD anymore. Um, and like, from the time I quit opioids in December to March, when I ran out of money for therapy, uh, my therapist told me like, I don't think you need to see me anymore anyway. I was already going to talk about you coming in like once a month or something, if you still want to continue. But I think we're like, good here. And maybe you need to come back years from now, maybe not. But over the course of like that year from quitting opioids to the next December, I, my chronic pain basically went away. Um, what, what was remaining after I quit the opioids just seemed to like resolve on its own. And so I have, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, as I said, and my joints dislocate. And in addition to my chronic pain getting better, I used to experience like multiple dislocations at one point at its worst, multiple dislocations an hour, even being bedridden. I would just shift like a couple centimeters and feel like my hip pop out. And I never had full dislocations. These were all partial dislocations, but sometimes my joints would also get stuck just right kind of outside the joint that like, they're not quite aligned in there. And then they get inflamed and go back in. And I, I just had all kinds of issues. And I went to, now I experience like maybe like five a week. I don't even know because I don't notice them. Because if, if they happen, I don't notice them. Rarely I will or like me and Cody will like hear them because sometimes they're loud. But also when they happen, <laughs> they're painless. It feels just like somebody cracking a joint. I don't know how that's possible. But that is what I've experienced. And I also... That's like that's quite what's funny is I'm pretty sure just like loud joint popping cracking is pain, painless loud popping is pretty normal 
but you're not used to it. So you're like, what is this weird? How could it be that loud, but not hurt? You're like, that's the normal thing. <laughs> I can feel, I can feel the joint moving, which is how I know that it's a dislocation. Oh, I, see I got very yeah. used to, um, there's this feeling of like, like, I don't know, instability. That makes sense. It feels Dude, like- I try to, I try to describe these little proprioception things sometimes. I, and they, they don't always work out trying to it put them work. in words. Like, do you know work. what the, do you know what the dead bug exercise is? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. You lay on your back and then like you put your legs up at like a 45 and you put your arms like straight up and then yeah. opposite arm and leg, you like drop one. Okay. So you're laying on your back, right? So when your arm comes back, it's like gravity is fighting it more and more. Right. And I'll be able to tell if my shoulder is okay to do that exercise that day or not. Yeah. Because it'll either feel yeah. like my shoulder is attached to my chest, which is attached to my core. Like I'll feel all of it like working together. Or it'll just be like the shoulder is barely dangling on the joint and the rest of it's not working together. And if I keep extending my arm, not something's going to like pop or give or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that kind of like, yeah, you can, can kind of feel, feel like that, that unstable, 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 like sensation, which I thankfully don't get a lot in my hips anymore. I did in like my earlier twenties, but these thirties hips are good. So <laughs> yeah, see bodies getting better. This doesn't happen to people with EDS and yet it has happened to us. Exactly. There's like, yeah. There's some other, oh yeah. The other thing I noticed is that like, I used to be I went through like a hardcore weightlifting phase uh, because I was trying to help with my EDS. Although then I just thought it was fibromyalgia. Um, I hadn't been diagnosed with EDS yet. And I, I would like notice that no matter how. Related to EDS. What? I bet a lot of fibromyalgia is related to EDS. Yes. It's directly related to EDS. It's it's just like a symptom. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's okay. just like muscle inflammation. That's yeah. why, like, <laughs> my genetics. Well, they had the weirdest. They had the weirdest there. parameters for it for the longest time, where the doctor just like they're trying pokes to collect you in like eleven EDS different symptoms. spots. Yeah, <laughs> it used when it was first invented. It was like oh. it's just muscle inflammation. But then they're like, oh, these people who have this inexplicable muscle inflammation and these trigger points in their muscles also have all these other symptoms, so it must be part of the disease. Mm. It's not. <laughs> It's just, they're just, they have EDS. Um, but like, I, yeah. So, so when I used to exercise, no matter how strong I got, and I got really fucking strong for a while in there, I was ripped. I could not go more than one day without exercising or I would lose literally all my strength. I, I would be back to like, the complete deconditioning. It, I if I tried to exercise again, it would feel like I had been laying in bed for six months. And mysteriously, at the beginning of this year, I would notice that I could skip like a week, or one time I even skipped almost three weeks. And then when I went back to like doing yoga, I was able to do the exact same routine. And whenever I went back to doing like my, I was like doing a little bit of like weightlifting at that time, I was able to do the exact same numbers of sets and reps and this exact same weight that I was doing before. 
And I've never been able to retain strength that long. I thought it was an impossibility. I, there were certain things that even after my chronic pain went away, I was like, there are certain symptoms I'm just always going to be stuck with because this is just how my body works. You've put a couple, yeah, even when you were like coming off opioids and, or you had, and you were talking about how amazed you were at just the lack of pain and like the, the things you were experiencing, but then you would still be very black and white or like adamant that like, but this other thing won't change and I'm still going to have to do this. And it, and I remember the exercise or something being one of them and me just being like, are you sure? But I don't know if I actually put it in the chat because I've gotten yeah, better at holding like, my tongue. <laughs> yeah, there's like a whole rabbit hole I could go down with like my geneticist has studied EDS for years. Um, he never really set out to treat people with EDS or study it, but he just so many people with EDS right. ended up coming to him that he got really curious about the condition, especially because he just has a really big heart and there was nobody else treating yeah. it. And he has like this very particular perspective of EDS that it is all essentially caused by excess adrenaline. Like there's this feedback loop between like the laxity of joints and tissues and how much adrenaline you produce and they feed on each other. The adrenaline makes the laxity worse. The laxity increases the adrenaline. Many times. <laughs> it's so interesting how I need information layered in certain ways for like big clicks to happen or whatever, because I know a lot more about adrenal stuff now in the last few months, even that, wow, that makes so much sense. And for my yes. own timeline. And before I was diagnosed with EDS, I had gone to a neurologist uh, and they did like a blood test on me with various different panels. And one of them measured my adrenaline. It was so high that it literally was above the values they measured. <laughs> it had a little note that was like it's above this but we don't talk about that <laughs> <laughs> wow and also like hilariously they just totally ignored that they're like they're really stress anxious, is like we we know that too much stress is not good for the bot like that's very basic wow it's so fascinating yeah, yeah that's like incredible. the fact that all of those mris i had showed uh inflammation in the neocortex and they were just like, well, maybe you have a corn allergy shrug. Because I was living in Indiana, but I wasn't from Indiana. And they're like, well, if you're not used to it, if you don't get acclimated as a toddler, you're likely to develop an allergy. And uh, again, I was too young. So fucking to, stupid. <laughs> I was too young and too, you know, you, you get like, you get tunnel, like pain, chronic pain tunnel vision. Where it's yeah. so... The idea of let me go and do my own research. Doctor says I have, you know, inflammation in my MRI. I didn't think to do that when I was 13. Like I just right. wanted to go home and like play a video game until I fell asleep so I don't have to feel the fucking pain anymore. Like um, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like I knew that I learned later in life that like uh sorry, I just wanted to say the other thing about the brain inflammation. Um, that all kinds of stress, right, causes inflammation throughout the body, but like actual, em like emotional stress, we now know can cause inflammation in the brain. And I apparently had multiple scans evidencing this, but we just, we didn't know of those connections, or at least those doctors didn't. So they were just like, corn allergy, shrug, wonder what's wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Just like my neurologist was like, oh, you have this malformation in your brain, but it's so small that it can't be symptomatic. And I was like, really? Because if we look at all the symptoms of that thing, that's exactly what I have. And you're not offering any, yeah, (laughs) like you're not offering any alternative explanations. But yeah, so I knew that when my tics, when my tics got really bad um, or started just being, they, they were getting wider away from my body. My whole like arms and legs were flailing more rather than just like a shoulder or a head, which isn't going to like harm other people. And they're like, you know, my parents are like, well, it's not, she's not hitting me. So we don't care. But when I was like 14, 15, we brought, my mom made me bring it up to whatever neurologist I was seeing at the time, Dr. Craig Vernon hell, you can go fuck yourself. He asked my mom like, t- like, so first of all, I mostly hate him because even though I was a teenager in his care, he often talked more to my mom than to me. Or there were a couple times where he had like a, you know, like a resident or a student doctor in there. And he would talk to the the resident, the student, like I wasn't there. Um, the most in the, my, the memory I hate the most is like, he's shining the light in my eyes and telling me to like, look back and forth. And he's like, and see by her pupil responses, we can tell that the patient has been taking her meds. Like she uh, reported. So she's not lying. And like, I'm like, I'm sitting right. I can, I speak English. I'm sitting (laughs) right in front of you. What the fuck? Um, I hated him for multiple reasons, but (laughs) he asked my mom a couple questions. One of them being like, does she get good grades? And my mom, because her identity is through me, she loves bragging about me because it supposedly says good things about her. So she goes, oh, yeah, mostly straight A's, always on the honor roll, blah, blah, blah. And then he said something like, does she keep a clean backpack or clean room or whatever? My mom's like, oh, yes, she's very organized. And like partially because I want to be and partially because they my parents make me be they are like they like the army cleanliness. Um But so he's like, okay, yeah, see a lot of people when they have the more like anal retentive personality type, they might develop tics because they're just a little more tense than regular people. That's all. It's fine. Murder. I'm like, but then later in life, I look it up and I'm like, this is a really important like neuro, like neurogenic symptom that any important specialist, that's not even a regular doctor. He was a specialist. You're a neurologist. (laughs) And you're just ignoring the fact that I have paroxysms and that they're getting more intense and more and more numerous. Oh, she's just type A personality. Try Never this other migraine any doctor drug. Who wants you to call him Dr. Craig? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, so I knew I knew that like EDS and adrenaline go hand in hand and that oh, one last I thing also- one last thing about ticks and then back to adrenaline which is I just want to add on in case we don't come back to it that like I tick maybe three times a day and they're mostly just vocal and nothing hurts or gets sore or whatever and like the things that used to trigger a tick like temperature changes and stuff like that just like way less I'm not hurting my my ticks like I just wanted to throw that out there because I also don't like fully know why that changed. I mostly just go nervous system regulation shrug. Um, but that's fucking cool. Anyways, tell me more about adrenaline and, and well, muscle laxity. Well, I just laxity. wanted to, to say <laughs> that like I, and I also had been fascinated for years with how like whenever you 
are trying to get diagnosed with EDS, if you do the genetic testing, which is not necessary, but I think doctors use it as a reason to not treat your EDS or not like mm. dignify it or not explore it because it's expensive and they know a lot of insurances don't cover it. Um, mm. Because like it doesn't really, there are some situations where knowing what specific um, mutation causes your EDS can help with treatment, but they're very, very few, very few. Um, and the, the like most common type, uh, hypermobile EDS has no known mutation. We can't isolate one. Doesn't necessarily mean one doesn't exist, but we, if it does, we can't find it. Uh, but I, when you get like genetic testing, they test the whole family because it's genetic. And quite often when this happens, there will be siblings or other family members that have the mutation but they're not symptomatic for EDS. They might even be hypermobile, but they're not like, they're, oh. they're probably hypermobile, but they don't have like chronic pain. They have digestive issues. No other body so- systems are affected. And so I had always wondered about this. And, and because like I would find people with EDS who essentially healed their EDS. Like I found this like personal trainer who like does all of these really, crazy difficult like relay races like I don't know if you've ever heard of like the tough mudder ones there, there's like a bunch of those and and I would always be like how can someone with EDS do this like how did you get better to the point where you could do like things that are essentially more difficult than military drills and yeah, someone clearly so, like, didn't I, tell them it was degenerative <laughs> right and so like I I knew all these things, but it still was like so, I was so indoctrinated by all of the stuff that I had read about EDS being degenerative and it only gets worse. And that like once you, because the other thing they say a lot is they say once your joints are overstretched, there is no going back. Yeah. And so I was just like, it's not possible. There's, it's just not possible. And, and yet somehow it has happened. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah, everything I read was just like a horror story. And and like I said, the main way I distracted, especially in high school, was I just overworked. I did show choir. I did color guard. I worked a job. I did like advanced classes, all of these things. I just, I played World of Warcraft. I, I needed to be like stimulated and doing shit at all times. And which then would confuse people if I mentioned that I have chronic pain because they'd be like, well, but you seem fine. Look. Look at all this stuff you do. And um, I'm like, that's because if I stop moving. Oh, my all my coping mechanisms? <laughs> yeah, all my coping mechanisms. Because if I stop moving, all I can think about is the pain. People are like, oh, if you're in pain, go lay down. That's torture. You're just laying me down no. in a torture chamber. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, but then I'm reading about EDS stuff. I've learned that I'm like hypermobile and it's, I've learned that I'm autistic. They, it looks likely that I have EDS because they go together and these things. But then the things I'm reading about EDS are like you said, is they like treat you like a rubber band that there's no way of fixing. It's just like when you've overstretched it, you've overstretched it and you're fucked. And I was like, oh, everything extra hurts now because of all the like flag twirling and shit I did. I have ruined my shoulders. And, and then the uh, rock climbing I did in college I'm I've just like fucked myself and I remember I just stopped reading it and I'm like I'll be dead soon so I'm just not going to think about this <laughs> it's funny you say rubber band because the way that they often talk about it is it's actually you're not like a rubber band you're like a chewed piece of gum you stretch it Ugh. it does not snap back <laughs> yeah right uh, I, like fuck you I vividly, 
Yeah, I vividly remember the day that I found out, like, before my diagnosis, that I was like, oh, I have this. I was, like, trying to go to bed one night, and I had this, like, I think it's an ocular migraine. I don't know exactly what it was. It was, like, some piercing eye pain that I used to get a lot that sucked. That I could fun. never find an explanation for it. And I was, like, I had been following um, this autistic girl on Instagram who had EDS. And she would talk about it a lot. And I'd be like, oh, we have a lot of the same symptoms. And I was, like, sitting there, like, why can't I figure out what this eye pain is? Why won't it go away? And I started, like, thinking about EDS. And I was, like, I'm just going to look up the symptoms of this. And I was, like, reading it and reading it. And I was, like, oh, my God. And I, like, came out of the bedroom. Like, Cody was still awake on his computer. And I came out of the bedroom crying. I was, like, in that moment, I was, like, my life is over. Because when I had fibromyalgia, I was, like, oh, this is a mysterious thing that is not genetic, that's not degenerative, that could just go away at any time. Because it's also, like, in Mm. my head, I'm, like, fibromyalgia is not damaging my tissues. Yeah. Even though inflammation does... But I just, this is the way I thought about it. So switching to like EDS where I'm like, oh, so everything ever in life makes my body break down more? That Like I'm literally just like made of glass and everything I do is damaging me. It it fucked with me. And I already have like, I already have OCD. I already have like a little bit of hypochondria and like serious phobias around health stuff. So like, well, if you're already like partially dislocating scary. and subluxing, like laying in bed, if if I was to yeah read that EDS myth, if that was true, you would just be like a goo pile with bones today. Right, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> like Cody would just be like wheeling you around <laughs> in a little, not even a wheelchair, like a carriage, because you're just I love a little in a wagon. <laughs> A little radio wagon. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, like, and whenever I first started, like, experiencing this, whenever my shit first started healing, I was, like, kind of afraid to talk about it because I know there are a lot of people who are really bought into that story. And I also thought the first thing that they would say is like, well, I'm sicker than you ever were. I have a more severe case. Because like, that's what I used to. I used to like. You must just not have been that sick. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is funny. This is what I wanted to like touch on more uh, before we end is like the identity part. Because there was there was something really cathartic and helpful about being like, okay, this is this, I have chronic pain. This is what chronic pain is. This is how we live our life through it. We got to like take these breaks or I got to make sure I do the safe in your zone of familiarity. <laughs> well, and like when, because we can't do all of the, when you're in that chronic pain state, you can't do all of the normal things and people around you might make you feel shit about it. And like having that identity, yeah, it becomes like the coping mechanism that it's so much what you're saying. It like helps lock in that familiarity zone, and that functional if you, zone. If you as a person really struggle with boundaries and respecting your own needs, uh, chronic pain can take care of that for you. Ha- chronic illness can take care of that for you because you have a built-in excuse that it's like when you live in a world where like my only need, my needs only get to be respected if they make sense 
or if other people agree with them or if they're mm-hmm. rational or whatever, then like having chronic illness is like your get out of jail free card that you, you always have that. Cause like that, and that did come up for me whenever my chronic pain first started going away is at first I felt like, Oh, now I have to do all the things that I've wanted to do for years. I have to do them right now <laughs> before it's too late because I've been wanting to do them for years and I didn't think I was ever going to get to do them. And now there's like nothing in my way. So if I'm the one that fails at actualizing my own dreams, then like I'll never be able to live with myself. And then I realized like, Oh wait, that's not how it works. I still have a lot of like inner parts that that need my attention and that are not like ready to do work and like we we could have a whole we could have a whole conversation <laughs> about how like chronic illness is often an emotional need manifesting in the body oh, and yeah. so now that the the symptom is gone i have to address that emotional need yeah. I can't just go back to ignoring my needs. Like when I know that I really need to rest today and I have to accept that like, yeah, some people might say like, no, you shouldn't rest or how dare you rest. And I have to be the champion of my own needs. I have to prioritize them. And that, that was phrase. so hard for me. And Fuck I remember yeah. thinking like, especially feeling afraid that Cody was going to be mad at me for not working. I thought he was going to be like, well, this just proves that you were lazy all along. This just proves that you were a piece of shit all along. Yeah. But like, you know, luckily he didn't do that. was very supportive and trusts me to know my own needs and stuff. But I, I felt like, and I realized that like, yeah, it's because I'm the one who thinks I'm lazy. I'm constantly scanning my environment for confirmation that I am lazy and bad. And maybe I should address that. Uh, Yeah, I imagine in like the next episode, which no one knows when that'll be uh, because we like to keep people on their toes. Um, But like most of what we've been talking about are changes we've made like a few years ago or more. And then we'll have another episode about the the changes in the last couple of years. because it's like, man, when you start this self-responsibility journey, there does seem to be a bit of like a, a little bit of like a J curve going on of yeah. how quickly changes are happening, transformations are happening, I guess. Um, yeah, it's crazy how like chronic illness really did keep me, it gave me a perma excuse not to um, claim my own agency and self-responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and in that the sense of the the hall of mirrors that we talk about that I picked up from Ian McGilchrist talking about how you can get kind of trapped in the left hemisphere's way of looking at things, which is very like segmented rather than the holistic view of the right hemisphere. And that it's called a hall of mirrors because it takes the true thing, but then kind of like fakely reproduces and you're just kind of like trapped in an image of it. And so I thought the like way I was caretaking my chronic pain was self-responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) When it was the thing stopping me from actually taking self-responsibility. Yeah, because I want to be clear that you can be chronically ill and self-responsible. They're not mutually exclusive, but if you're looking for an excuse not to be or like a, a maze to trap yourself in so you never get to it. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. <laughs> well, and I, yeah, I guess I'm still kind of stuck in like, 
I want more people to know, I want them to feel the hope, to know the possibilities that like these some of these chronic things don't necessarily have to be chronic, which is scary because in your condition, they, they still might be like, well, we can't, I can't like prove or say that anyone could cure their chronic pain. I don't know that for sure. Um, but, and also like, it takes so much to just finally take it on as an identity. Like, I guess I'm not getting out of this. Let me just like, I am a spoony person or whatever, that it's so ego offensive to then go in and be like, but well, you could have hope. You could try these things. Um, I guess some part of me is, is hoping that this episode will act in that way somehow for someone. I'm not really, cause yeah, even when, like you said, I didn't, I, I know I thought it, I know I thought it, I might've even journaled about it being like, I wonder, I bet I want Gray to not have chronic pain. I wonder like if I can do it and, and our pain like seems really similar or like we have all these other similarities, like if I could do it, maybe they could do it. But I also knew because I had also been in that identity space that if anyone had just said it to me like that, it's the same as someone being like, have you tried yoga? Have you tried Chinese herbal medicine? Have you tried? And it's like, go fuck yourself. So I don't know how to get past the go fuck yourself wall, but if you can hear this, <laughs> well, if you well, can hear I this, what would you I've recommend? Huh? What would we recommend? If someone's like, okay, if I'm to have, if you want me to have some hope about my, my chronic pain and it's similar it's joint, head, gut stuff, or whatever. What would well, it's we? Like we're always talking about how there is surrender and there is a bypassing sort of surrender, mm -hmm. where you think it's like you have to hold this pose where you're somewhere between surrender and having like reckless, unrealistic hope where you're avoiding reality. Like, would that be like give up, like surrender versus give up? Does that? fit yeah i think so like and i mean one thing that i've definitely because for years i've been really obsessed with like how do you get under people's defenses that like there there's certain ways in which you're not invited to have that discussion with someone yeah. and it is healthy for you to not go there but then like <laughs> If if somebody is listening to this podcast and you are already like, because when I was in that space where I was like in wealth and I heard about that lady who helps people with chronic illness and I was like, okay, I believe she's not lying. I believe mm -hmm. that like she is actually, that this is happening. And I knew you and I knew your experience and was like, okay, I believe that's possible. Then I'm in a space where I can be confronted with that stuff. But I'm still going to experience it as confrontational. Mm -hmm. But like there, there kind of is no way to get underneath people's defenses. But like you're like if you have if you have a friend with chronic illness that's like open to this conversation, they probably are going to get mad at you and want to whack you. And then hopefully if they're like, you know, on this like self-responsibility journey, they'll try to exercise some awareness around that. Why did I get so angry? Because they'll hopefully like they'll realize that we only we don't get angry. It's like when someone tries to shame us, we don't feel shamed unless we 
share yeah. the belief that what is being shamed is worthy of shaming. So yeah. you don't get angry that like if you just don't care about curing your chronic illness, you don't get angry at someone suggesting that's possible. It would be neutral. You, you would actually, just be like, you just kind of okay, thank you know, all right. If you say yeah, you know, exactly. you would there'd be a so neutrality like the, to it. The ways <clears throat> in which we trigger people, that's like their portal. But like yeah. it they might bounce away from that portal and be like, Nope, I'm not going in and you can't make me, but like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, if you can hear us, nervous system regulation and emotional processing type stuff was huge for both of us. Um, mine was a more accidental, implicit version, and yours was a more intentional, explicit version. <laughs> um, until the last couple of years, in which I have done that a lot more explicitly, and wow, the results. But that's for another chat so well thank you so much for listening to this episode of the composting consciousness podcast with gray garland and tango faye Batelli. follow us on instagram at composting underscore consciousness Follow us on Substack at compostingconsciousness.substack.com or just head straight to our website, compostingconsciousness.podia.com to discover the main hub of all our work. And that's Podia, P-O-D-I-A. We've got two free PDFs, uh, how to compost your victimhood and how to compost your anger. And you can also schedule a coaching call, check out our Seeding Sovereignty workshop, read more about our Reap and Sow membership program, all that good stuff at compostingconsciousness.podia.com. And if you just want to reach out and talk to us or ask a question, you can email us at compostingconsciousness at gmail.com. We can edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like... <laughs>